0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Advances in the Care of Patients with MSI High DMMR, or HER2-positive colorectal cancers, is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives.
1: Welcome to Chapter 1 of the series. Today, we're going to be talking about biomarkers for metastatic colorectal cancer patients. We know that 12 to 15% of all patients with metastatic colorectal cancer are found to be microsatellite unstable or lack deficiency in MMR proteins. We know in the stage four setting, the lack of MMR proteins is actually a poor prognostic biomarker. Um, Whereas in earlier stage disease, MSI high patients actually do quite well. Um, We are also learning about HER2 amplifications as an important um, biomarker in metastatic CRC. The prognostic value of HER2 is more debatable than MSI-high patients. Nonetheless, these biomarkers are really important for our patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. So today we're going to start to think about how we can actually use these current biomarkers, best optimize outcomes for patients with these alterations. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Parnaparik from the MGH Cancer Center. And today here with me are Dr. Um, Justin Deming and Dr. Scott Kobetz.
0: Hello, thanks for having me. Likewise, delighted to be here. Thanks.
1: All right, let's get started. Um, So, Dr. Deming, I would love for you to set the stage for us um, for this chapterized course, and would be great if you could tell us how we could identify the right treatments for the right patients with MSI-high metastatic CRC, um, particularly based on the current NCCN guidelines.
2: Thank you. So, it's really important to now understand that colorectal cancer is just not one disease, and as soon as someone is diagnosed with colorectal cancer, it's really important for us to understand their microsatellite instability high or MSI high or mismatch uh, repair um, status, because those patients who um, are have MSI high cancer or are mismatch repair deficient. Those um, cancers are much more likely to be Lynch uh, syndrome-related cancers. So they have a hereditary predisposition to cancer. Um, In addition, this is now changing the way in which we treat patients with these patients being uh, candidates for uh, immunotherapy options. There's multiple ways in which this testing can be done. This can be done uh, commonly uh, uh, looking at Uh, immunohistochemistry for mismatch repair proteins. Um, Additionally, there are well-validated PCR based that uh, report out microsatellite instability. And now um, what's happening um, quite commonly is that um, physicians are getting um, next-gen sequencing panels done, which can provide this information in multiple different ways. This includes the microsatellite um, status in addition to uh, being able to identify actually um, mutant changes in some of the mismatch repair genes, and then um, also can get a a sense of the tumor mutation burden, which can be helpful in identifying patients with microsatellite um, instability. All of these tests have uh, pros and cons, and actually I recommend in general that uh, more than one of these um, assays are actually uh, performed for these patients because they're especially patients with advanced disease because there are such important clinical implications for uh, the finding of MSI high status or mismatch repair deficient status. So in general, in my practice, I actually get uh, mismatch repair immunohistochemistry performed in addition to a a NGS panel. That NGS panel can also give us a lot of additional information that we need to treat these patients, including KRAS, NRAS, BRAF, and and HER2 status, among others. That's
1: great. Thanks so much for um, that great overview. Um, Dr. Kopacz, in your mind, what are some of the best practices for testing for um, MSI high disease? So we've talked um, a lot so far about um, um, IHC, um, NGS, as well as PCR, but is there anything else that you'd like to discuss to really think about testing?
0: I think the key message, just to reiterate, is that it's really every patient that should be tested. Um, and this is not just metastatic disease, but any stage of disease. So the current guidelines really suggest that this should be deployed as the first, one of the first tests that we do when a patient's diagnosed with uh, with cancer. This is different from uh, what many of us were taught in training, where we were uh, taught the Amsterdam or uh, Bethesda criteria to try to identify patients where uh, mismatch repair testing was appropriate. And those are no longer relevant in our clinical practice. We should really be testing everyone. Now, the type of test, as Dr. Deming mentioned, uh, is probably less critical. Uh, in our practice, we're using uh, immunohistochemistry just because of its speed and ease of getting this information uh, back. Uh, but I agree that uh, complementary testing certainly is reasonable. The other question that comes up is, should you be uh testing again uh, later in disease, or should you test a metastatic site if initial testing was done on the primary tumor? And uh, our experience has been that really these are highly concordant, that if you have testing done on a patient uh, at one sample, one point in time, that's usually sufficient. I think as Dr. Deming mentioned, if there is a very high suspicion that there's a strong family history. It's still worth uh, referring patients over for genetic testing, even in the absence of of an MSI high uh, finding, and sometimes repeat testing with other methodologies is warranted.
1: Yeah, those are all such great points and um, can't echo those sentiments enough. I think um, we have sort of reflex testing now on every new CRC diagnosis Um, There's a lot of sort of real-world data sets that have shown that they're still under testing, um, despite incredibly efficacious therapeutic options for these patients. So um, just echoing Dr. Demings and Copetz's comments on kind of universal um, testing for this as indeed the best practice. Um, um, So with that, um, thank you. And now we'll move to chapter two. And in chapter two, we're gonna talk about setting patient expectations and the treatment of MSI CRC now that we've talked about testing. Um, So stay tuned for this next chapter. Welcome back to Chapter 2. We were just discussing how to identify the right treatment for the right patient with biomarker testing for microsatellite instability. And now we're going to start to talk about setting expectations about how we treat our patients that are MSI high. So Dr. Kopetz, in the last um, couple of years, we have seen a tremendous amount of data, both in colon cancer, rectal cancer, neoadjuvant, metastatic um, adjuvant, um, really um, uh, blossoming of data in this space in terms of clinical trials for MSI um, patients. Um, but in metastatic CRC, what are some of your standout um, data or what, what is the standout data from you um, in terms of clinical trials for MSI patients in the metastatic disease?
0: So for uh, patients with MSI-high colorectal cancer, uh, immunotherapy can be game-changers. We have now many years of data that suggests in patients with second and uh, and third line or beyond uh, metastatic colorectal cancer, immunotherapy with pembrolizumab, nivolumab, or nivolumab and ipilimumab can all provide uh, very uh, profound uh, responses that can be durable. When we look at uh, the One, two year progression free survival curves, now supplemented with more than five years of follow up, it's fair to say that a subset of these patients can be cured with this uh, immunotherapy. We also now have data demonstrating the survival advantage of treatment initiation and first line therapy with pembrolizumab, where that is now considered the standard of care for patients with metastatic disease. There is emerging data for patients with localized therapy that immunotherapy uh, in the neoadjuvant setting for either colon or rectal cancer, here the NICHE-2 study or the rectal cancer study from Memorial Sloan-Kettering that was reported, can demonstrate very high response rates and suggest that we may be able to avoid surgery in a subset of these patients.
1: Yeah, and I think the biology of um, localized disease versus metastatic disease and the differing responses is um, fascinating. And before I um, turn the questions back to Dr. Deming to talk about toxicity, um, I think one important comment on toxicity is the um, you know CTLA four PD one combinations. And Dr. Kopetz um, would love for you to just comment for a minute on how you're thinking about um, using the doublet. Are you ever considering it in first line? Or are you doing it? at progression to try to um, salvage um, or recapture responses to immunotherapy. And then um, we'll talk about about some of the challenges with toxicity that we see, particularly with the doublets.
0: Yeah, and I'll say that, uh, you know, with the doses of uh, CTLA-4 that utilized uh, there, there is slightly higher toxicities, but still manageable. In my practice, I tend to turn to the doublet uh, more commonly than the the single uh, PD-1 inhibitor. Uh, but this is based on uh, limited cross trial, cross cohort comparisons, really suggesting a higher plateau in that PFS curve. Randomized studies to really ask the question about uh, whether there's a difference between PD1 or PD1 and CTLA4 are ongoing, and that's really going to provide us the more definitive information on our strategy that we should be utilizing.
1: Totally agree. And um, you know, Dr. Kopich just talked a little bit, Dr. Deming, about um, some of the toxicity, particularly with um, doublet versus monotherapy. Um, could you chat a little bit about some of these um, immune-related AEs um, that we're seeing commonly and how they're best managed, entirely recognizing this could be a chapter in and of itself?
2: So correct. The immune um, adversary events can be a major problem for patients Um, undergoing therapy with the the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Thankfully, we have um, learned, uh, unfortunately the hard way, but thankfully, um, we've learned that uh, we can dose uh, many of these um, inhibitors at a much lower dose than what we were initially using. And so the immune-related adverse events um, were much more uh, significant at the much higher doses, especially of drugs like um, ipilimumab. Um, when we were using much higher doses. Now using the more uh, common lower dose um, treatment strategies, those immune-related adverse events have become much less um, common and also um, uh, much less uh, significant. And so Um, Now, with combination anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4 therapy, we're seeing um, up to 20% of patients having um, immune-related adverse events um, of a a significant nature. Um, The immune-related adverse events can be of all different degrees. Um, Commonly, we're seeing things like ferritis, rash, um, fatigue. Um, These can be uh, often managed with simple interventions, Um, Sometimes a dose um, delay is helpful. Sometimes for things like a mild rash, we're using topical steroids. As the adverse events become more significant with things like diarrhea from immune-related colitis or immune hepatitis, we're thinking about more significant interventions such as steroids. The key with almost all of these immune-related adverse events is catching them early. So the earlier we realize that the immune system is doing things we don't want it to do, and the, the earlier we intervene, especially with um, systemic steroids, um, the better the patients will do. There are, however, still instances where patients develop quite severe um, uh, endocrinopathies or, um, you know, in rare instances we can see Um, the immune system affecting the the lungs or heart, et cetera, and and sometimes steroids aren't enough and we need to turn um, to uh, drugs like infliximab to further um, suppress the immune system. Um, Excitingly, because of how common it has been that um, immune therapies are being utilized, there are now great resources for Um, medical oncologists using these agents. The NCCN has developed immune-related adverse event guidelines that are very useful and also just recently published um, immune-related adverse events, uh, a patient uh, guideline that is a patient-friendly version of these guidelines that can be very helpful for the patients to understand what to look out for and how to manage, um, at least the basics of how to manage some of these immune-related adverse events. So early recognition,
1: multidisciplinary management, um, and there's best practices for checking baseline labs, for example, to understand what patients are starting from as you're starting to sort out these AEs. But um, I think something that the GI oncology field um, is increasingly becoming adept to, um, you know, well behind some of our melanoma and lung colleagues, but... um, uh, we we stand on um, and greatly appreciate their uh, guidance um, and kind of trailing, being the trailblazers for us in this space. So with that, um, we'll wrap up chapter two, and we're now going to move to HER2 positive um, metastatic CRC, so stay tuned for this next chapter. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Parik and here with me today are Drs. Dustin Deming and Dr. Scott Kopetz, And we've been discussing advances in the care of patients with metastatic microsatellite high colorectal cancer, as well as HER2-amplified colorectal cancer. Welcome back to Chapter 3. After discussing some recent data and adverse events um, in terms of immunotherapy and microsatellite um, instability, we're going to shift gears now to some targeted therapies and particularly emerging treatments um, in the HER2 um, CRC space. Um, which is really exciting. And again, we've seen um, some exciting data over the last couple of years that is really moving the needle for how we start to think about this important biomarker. So Dr. Deming, um, can you comment on some of the um, ongoing but also completed trials um, now in HER2 um, disease?
2: Sure. So there's been a lot of um, really exciting work done now, specifically looking at this HER2 population, HER2 amplified population. So there is only about uh, 3 to 5% of, of patients in the MediSac setting that have HER2 amplification. But it, when it is amplified, um, especially in the absence of a concomitant KRAS mutation, patients can respond extremely well to um, HER2-targeted therapies. One of the first studies that really showed significant benefit to um, targeting HER2 was the MyPathway study that looked at the combination of trastuzumab and pertuzumab specifically for HER2-mutated colorectal cancer and saw that this therapy was very well tolerated and uh, approximately 30 to 40% of patients had partial response uh, to this therapy. Additionally, the DESTINY um, CRC-01 um, study has demonstrated that uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan also has um, activity in this setting. Now, this therapy is a little bit um, different than um, a pure targeted um, combination like trastuzumab pertuzumab, in that, this antibody drug conjugate does have um, more significant um, side effects as this is a, a real chemotherapy. Um, in addition to it being targeted to um, HER2-amplified cancers and does have the risk of um, interstitial lung disease, which can be fatal, though thankfully quite uncommon. More recently, We're now seeing um, data coming out of the uh, Mountaineer Phase II clinical trial, which has now shown significant activity for the combination of tucatinib plus trastuzumab for patients with HER2-amplified metastatic colorectal cancer. This study showed a similar response rate with this combination to that seen in the MyPathway study, but excitingly in this study, we do see significant Prolonging um, of a progression-free survival out to um, eight months with this combination. Now, this wasn't a randomized study and wasn't compared directly to trastuzumab pertuzumab, so we don't know about the potential benefit of these two regimens versus each other. But both are now very reasonable options for patients with metastatic uh, HER2-amplified colorectal cancer. Uh, additionally, there are ongoing studies, including the Mountaineer 3 study, which is looking at the combination of tucatinib and chustuzumab specifically for patients um, in the first-line setting in combination with full-fox chemotherapy um, versus um, standard-of-care treatment. And also, excitingly, there is a uh, SWOG study, 1613, that is looking at comparing um, standard of care Cetuximab and RRT-CAN for these patients versus uh, Trastuzumab, Pertuzumab. This will be a really important study as we figure out where in the lines of therapy we should place HER2-directed therapies.
1: Yeah, it's great to have so many options. You know, we um, I think one other comment is we tend to see more HER2 amplifications, more in rectal cancers too than colon cancers. Although um, you know the testing is um, the same for both, and you know in the NCCN guidelines we also had the option um, previously of a Herceptin Lipatinib. And I think the important thing, at least we'll with the um, antibodies and small molecules, is that you know Herceptin alone really didn't have single agent activity. So it's great now that we have these options plus an ADC um, to start to think about how to sequence. Uh, care for these patients. Dr. Kopetz, um, how will emerging evidence, whether it's the first line um, or starting to think about sequencing, you know, how does this make you think about where HER2 fits in in the landscape of treatment for um, you know, metastatic colorectal cancer?
0: I think it's uh, great to have these options. And uh, now this is a space in a, a population that's clearly well-defined. Um, you know, we do think about uh, these populations slightly differently. Uh, right now, most of the uh, HER2 targeting therapies being done in kind of second or you know, line or beyond. Although, as mentioned, there's a first line randomized study that is going to be looking at the role of uh, of and trastuzumab and uh, first line. The uh, it's important to recognize that the targeted therapies have uh, have their uh, best data in patients that have a, a RAS wild-type tumor, um, and though although uh, KRAS is not seen as frequently in the HER2-amplified population, it certainly is still seen, uh, but we think that those patients may not do quite as well with the targeted therapies. In contrast, the ADC's its mechanism of action uh, really is active. Uh, we think um, in both populations, although again, clinical data is still um, still emerging. Um, so we uh, I do incorporate the RAS status to try to pick best uh, treatments for our patients. Um, and really, at this point, uh, the utilization is kind of in that second or third line setting.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, one thing maybe we can just comment on before we um, wrap up this section. So um, I think. Takeaway A, again, is that testing is important. And um, the same way we talked about MSI high testing being universal, HER2 should um, absolutely be tested in all patients with metastatic disease. Anyway, um, that was a great chapter three. And we're going to move on to chapter four now. And in chapter four, we're going to talk about regional considerations for the, the testing and treatment of MSI high disease. So stay tuned for chapter four. Welcome back. Um, Now that we've discussed the future of HER2-amplified CRC, we're going to go back and talk about regional considerations in the testing and treatment of MSI-high disease. Dr. Kopetz, you're obviously a U.S.-based oncologist, but um, would love to pick your brain a little bit and um, hear your thoughts on your understanding and impressions of MSI-high testing outside of the U.S. And um, are there any global um, guidelines that may vary or perhaps under-testing or over-testing, um, I guess there's no such thing as over-testing, but uh, just to start to think about global context for MSI high testing outside of the
0: U.S. That is a key message uh, that we hope uh, we can leave, uh, uh, leave this chapter with, is that, you know, MSI testing should be done uh, universally. Um, when we think about global uh, guidelines, uh, we acknowledge that there's a deviation in what's available in treatments and, and therapeutics that uh, vary very widely uh, throughout the world. Uh, fortunately, there is a fair bit of consensus around what we should be doing for a biomarker testing. The current guidelines really are recommending MSI high testing uh, for patients. And this is clear because of the uh, association with the hereditary syndrome and screening for that, but also the opportunity where available to uh, treat the patients with the PD-1-based therapy. We do see, however, that there's variable uptake, um, and part of this is, uh, you know, access to, uh, to testing and awareness, um, but uh, there is variable uptake despite the fact that there's a near-universal uh, recommendation to uh, broadly MSI test.
1: Dr. Deming, can you tell us a little bit about recent approvals outside of the U.S. for immunotherapy?
2: So pembrolizumab has now um, received approval in the EU for metastatic colorectal cancer that's MSI high or mismatch repair deficient. Um, so, so much like is also FDA approved here in the U.S., this, this approval, I think, is a great advance for, for patients. The the key that um, you know we're all talking about is is making sure that the the testing is done. So to be able to use these therapies in the first line setting where we really want to use them uh, for these patients, we have to have that testing done up front and before um, the the treatment is started. Uh, for colorectal cancer, it's often pretty easy to see a patient get that diagnosis of metastatic colon cancer and want to start. Full Fox or full Fury, uh, but really we're doing these patients with MSI high cancers a disservice by not giving them immunotherapies um, in the the first line setting. And it's quite impressive, actually, how poorly um, these patients can do with um, standard chemotherapies. And this is not only seen in the metastatic setting, but in the neoadjuvant setting as as well. Um, really important for these patients to have tested. Done early and get started on therapies in that first line setting.
1: All great points, and um, you know, I uh, take home messages that you know I you're, hope you're hearing t- over and over again is um, you know, testing for msi high disease. Um, but testing is only useful if you have the therapies to go with the test. And exposure to immunotherapy is really a game changer for these patients. And so a test for these biomarkers like MSI high disease, especially exciting to hear about the EU approval. So hopefully um, more patients across the globe will have access to checkpoint inhibitors for this patient segment. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I really wanted to thank our audience um, for listening in today. And um, thanks to um, my good friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Deming and Dr. Kopetz, for joining me and sharing their um, always valuable insights Um, It's great speaking with you today, as always.
0: Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Uh, Thank
2: you. My pleasure.
0: You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com/slash Innovations in Oncology. Thank you for listening.